0: I'm Beck Bajant, and this is Law and Disorder. Hello, episode two. Here we go. Thanks to everyone for tuning into episode one. Some great five star ratings and reviews on Google and the likes. I'm going to crack straight into this one. The same trigger warning applies from the first episode. Uh, In this one, we talk about complex offenders, so that is quite heinous and serious crimes. We don't go into details of specific people, but the nature of the conversation can be quite triggering. So this episode literally cuts in mid-conversation from where we left off because we are a well-oiled machine here. Uh, If you'd like to produce my podcast... Please get in contact. Uh, Okay. Enjoy. Are you ready to hit the road?
1: Yeah, let's do it. Do you dream about anything? Yeah, I have the odd time. What tends to happen for me is, so in sort of, I'd say, so in nine years of sort of doing this job, I would say I've probably had about three or for nightmare periods where I've repetitively for maybe a week or so Mm. dreamt about something pertaining to an offence or an individual. And what I've noticed, a pattern for me, is that, like I said, it's only happened really a couple of times, but what's happened really is it's been times where i 've noticed that I'm not dealing with stress very well I'm not mm. dealing with the situation very well like I can remember one particular guy that he s- just got under my skin so much mm. for specific reasons which I which over time working in the job you realize what sort of personalities and what sort of um schemas yes people exhibit that get under your skin so I'm fully aware of what schemas and what personalities trigger me mm. as a therapist and as a clinician and as a psychologist but I think that with regards to those instances, this guy was just like, he just got under my skin so much. And I worked with him very intensely for approximately a year. He had really strong personality disorders, he was highly manipulative extremely intellectual and we were always for that whole year that i worked with him it was just a pure cat and mouse scenario it was so overt because he knew it was a cat and mouse scenario and Mm. i knew it was a cat and mouse scenario but we both played the part like we didn't Mm. so it was almost like this it was sort of never ending because i was in that that prison for five years and i worked with this man four mornings a week for nearly a year so it was extremely intense and for that reason it's sort of inevitable yes. that I'm going to dream about him Yeah. so it's like you know when you're strange comparing him alluding him to my partner but imagine like if you're constantly arguing with your partner yeah. or constantly in conflict with your partner or there's an underlying inevitable. Thing, you're going to dream about your partner absolutely you know? and You know, I'm not saying for a moment he's like my partner, but sometimes it almost feels like that. It's a significant presence. Somebody that you see regularly, somebody that... Four
0: mornings a week.
1: Yeah, I mean, I saw him more than I saw the majority of my family. That's a lot.
0: Yeah. Is the system, when you're seeing someone that regularly, are they hoping to get some sort of rehabilitation out of that?
1: Yeah. So for for me and that particular individual, we were completing what's called an SOTP program, which is the Sex Offender Treatment Programme. So for that programme, you, you're often on the programme with someone for six months. I'm running the programme with approximately nine men. And in that time, you probably complete four sessions a week, four mornings a week. So two hours every day. You know, you'd at least be with that individual for six months every day. So those nine men, I would see those nine men more mm-hmm. than I would see the majority of people in my whole life.
0: And how long would a program run for?
1: So the ones I worked on were either six months or a year long. And then once they finished that program, I would then refer them on to something else. So if they were a medium to high risk offender, they would often go on to another program. So for example, I could could be working with a man for a year and a half or two years. Mm. So it's a really long time to be spending with an individual who's a high risk, dangerous person, you know do you find
0: it interesting the journey that you go on together Um, you know is it quite obvious with some people you're like it's not going to get much deeper than this but then you know you talk about cat and mouse people like that where you're really I don't know some people you'd be pulling back
1: layers some people you'd just be playing games Mm -hmm. do you find the
0: process from start to finish quite interesting
1: yeah it is very fascinating because us as humans we're like onions aren't we we all have layers (laughs) even if we're surface based or deep and I think that with these individuals and with the nature of my job it's very very clear Mm. who are the people that are benefiting from rehabilitation and intervention and treatment and who are the people that are just paying lip service yes it's very overtly obvious yeah and sometimes you don't even need to be a psychologist Mm. or in my role to recognize that you know if I put you Mm. with these nine men four mornings a week Mm. and you just have to sit with them and hang out with them i'm sure that you would get a a pretty good impression of who's actually has an ability to change and a capacity to make different decisions and who Mm -hmm. hasn't and my role obviously as a psychologist is to differentiate between who has and who hasn't and who's ready to be released and who's not But
0: I think from my perspective, and I'm just a layperson who's not educated in this industry, Mm. and so this is purely perception-based, I guess, is that I see you as a very capable, emotionally well-rounded psychologist Mm. who would absolutely pick up these things, and I would trust your accuracy. Mm. But I do worry that, you know, in the business, Mm. globally, you're at the top you're one of the best and I, I, when we see offenders go back on the street who re-offend, you know, some of them that day, Mm. is it because people have misjudged their ability to go back into the community or is it the legal system who has not supported people in your role for example?
1: I think really that just boils down to the key question really doesn't it, I mean I think that it's a combination of the both, I think that I have been in a position where I have, you know, made a mistake and I have called it wrong. I have been in a, a situation where you know, there's always the possibility of the presence of human error, you mm-hmm. know, in no matter yes. what job we do. Yeah. And I think that there is the side of it where the psychologist has made an error or omitted some Mm. important information for whatever reason that may be but then at the same time there's the contribution of the powers that be haven't perhaps given the 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 most amount of support they could or perhaps or not even given the most amount of support i'm just trying to think of an actual sort of example where this has happened because Mm. for me I can only speak from I'm I'm referring to one particular incident where, mm-hmm. for example, like I worked with a guy for, we did a what was called a rolling program, so that meant that he was on the group for about three or four months because mm-hmm. they roll on and they roll off. He was very much of a I was aware he was very much of a lip paying lip service guy, and he was very sort of, he's quite manipulative, relatively smart he saw it and I knew he kinda of knew how to say the right thing. And really what happened was he he had done loads of treatment, he was on a rolling programme. He had probably done about two years of treatment, two, three years of treatment, something like that. He was on a rolling programme. He was at the end of his sentence and I wrote a report to basically support his release, mm-hmm. saying that he recognizes these risk factors, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, whatever, and he has these um, these management strategies in place mm-hmm. for managing these risk factors. Because that's essentially what is our report, what are the mm-hmm. risk factors, what are their management strategies, how able are they to do that. Mm-hmm. He was very capable of identifying, he was very open and receptive to his risk factors and he recognized a lot of different ways he can manage that and what actually happened was he was released and within six months of six months of his release he attempted to sexually assault a female Mm -hmm. and luckily you know thank god this female managed to get away Mm. uh so he was then returned straight back to prison so i was part of that process of, of of him being released and when he came back we very much broke it down and you know I can tell you know I can go into the story for ages but for the purpose of this I'll just Mm. sort of summarize it but we obviously had to do a real um sort of risk assessment and break down what went wrong and Mm. where did we what did we miss and really you know obviously I was the one that sort of wrote the report and made the error but at the same time not sort of defending myself but Mm. at the same time I think the difficult thing was is that in that instance you can only work with what you have at that time with that individual and obviously he was in prison for sort of maybe five or six years and at that time he would have been deemed as i sort of assessed in my report Mm. that he was a reduced risk um for these reasons but what actually happened was the six months after he was released his circumstances changed Mm. so because of his circumstances changed it meant that his risk factors changed and what again this is sort of alluding to the original question you asked is that there was a lot of problems with his parole um, at the time like it's not his necessarily I'm not blaming his parole officer but mm. there was a lot of issues with the parole at the time in the sense that the monitoring wasn't as regular mm. so they hadn't they weren't made aware that his circumstances his his housing and his employment had changed. and his relationship status had changed mm. and they weren't monitoring that so those are real risky areas for him especially his relationship status because he had major abandonment issues that were Mm. going on so unfortunately the the sad thing is is that sometimes we don't have that ongoing connection and that ongoing link and that ongoing Mm. monitoring of people that we write reports on Mm. but at the same time if something goes wrong it comes back the backlash comes back to us so obviously you know I accepted responsibility on on some of my part but I think In response to your question, some of the responsibility does lie, unfortunately, with the system. Mm. And the way that the parole is managed, it's called something different in England, but Mm. the way that that's managed. That was obviously an extremely emotional time and a very difficult period, probably one of those difficult times of my career, I'd say.
0: And how old were you when that happened?
1: And I was, this was early on in my career, so this is probably like, maybe I'd say three and a half years in it was i'd say three and a half years so it's a good while ago now and it's something that obviously so like mid-20s late 20s so it's been 10 years so i'd have been yeah about 26 25 i mean that's a lot to take on for a 26 isn't it? year old isn't it i know? look back on my young self and think god poor you you dealt with so much shit you
0: know you shit that's yeah right
1: now i think i would be a lot more resilient to that now but yeah. early on you're just like i am responsible for somebody attacking somebody else. And I felt wholly 100% responsible for the fact that that woman's life is irreversibly changed. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, she's probably can't trust men. She might not be able to sleep at night. She's probably gonna be fearful for the rest of her life. She's gonna have countless different traumas. And I took, you know, I felt very responsible for that.
0: I mean, now looking back on it, you were one, part of that story that yeah, you were all sure, of it you know sure. and
1: i just i personalized it yeah. and i see that now because obviously yeah. i'm away from the situation i've i've processed that but do you know what i think in my job it's part and parcel of the job like i think that that is something that is just if i choose to do this role it's the fact that's, that's part of it yeah. and i think that yeah. yes it's awful and horrendous and it, it fills you with a lot of guilt and you yourself, sleepless nights and overthinking, but, mm. but really, I choose to do this job, I'm really passionate about this job, and yes, unfortunately, I'm human and I'm going to make mistakes. And
0: I think that's really important to call that context out, because if you think about up until that point, how many people you had helped, and you yeah. know, future things that were mitigated because of the good work you did, it's almost like it's 99 people saved, one person harmed yeah you've got to take almost the good with the bad but i think about how i would respond if it happened to me now fuck oh, oh
1: and yeah i do appreciate that sort of recognition um mm-hmm. and from from yourself because i think that i think that it's tough because one of the primary reasons i do my my job is to prevent further victims mm-hmm. so first a few of the earlier reasons are you know i want to make a difference and i help people and that's just in my nature Mm. i I am a person that just wants to help people and it always has been but it's also to prevent further victims and i think that Mm. because that situation went 100 percent against what my purpose is and what my belief is and Mm. what i actually ended up doing that's why it was so difficult as well like i said lots of there's been lots of really difficult and challenging and confronting things there's been a few incidents that have happened in sort of 10 years that I found very I suppose they've made me a lot stronger
0: Mm. when we talked about trauma being a Mm. bit of a word that uh, the lay person doesn't really come across that often I find it fascinating the influence of I'll tell you what this word is yeah go on the the influence of this on number one uh criminals and the effect it has when we talk about their schemas and stuff like that but also on mental health and what's physical and what's not physical is high functioning people Mm. Mm. so can you give a a very basic description for people on what you
1: see as high functioning Mm. i don't know if you read the psychopath test no okay it's very very good book yeah um the thing is what is sort of it's not sort of it's very worrying is that if you look at the extremes of serial killers and people that commit horrific offenses unfortunately a lot of their makeup and a lot of their sort of um schemas and a lot of their thinking processes and certainly their behaviors is actually correlated with people who are high up as CEOs in yes, companies. correct. And really, I'm not sure if people are familiar with the PCLR checklist, but it's the psychopathy checklist, right. rating scale. And you'll find that if you performed the PCLR mm. on serial killers and really perhaps violent or sexual offenders, mm. and you also did that on high um, corporate CEOs in... in um, in a lot of um, famous famous companies, mm. then there will be like a real correlation. And I'm not I'm not I'm not saying for I'm not saying that you know every high uh, you know high flying CEO is a psychopath. I'm certainly not saying that. But what I am saying is that what makes up someone to be high functioning, um, there is a lot of similarities there. And I think one thing we forget again is that there's a lot of elements of narcissism, Mm. of, you know, that glib, charming, charming approach Mm. and that sort of very manipulative... Essentially, as I said there, the narcissist, Mm. that that is present in a lot of people from both ends of the spectrum. And really the only thing that differentiates them is not necessarily their makeup, but is actually their behavior and what they're doing with that. So so obviously, harming others and Mm. causing and and committing offenses is is obviously a lot worse than running a company, I know that. But at the same time, it's worrying Mm. that there's a lot of people who are wandering around that actually do have the potential to be extremely dangerous and risky, and there is a thin line you're talking about
0: similarities in the the mechanics that make up the pre almost mm-hmm. and then the differentiation is in the how for that person it translates as well yeah and yes. the outlets and also the situational factors that can influence that behavior one way mm-hmm. or another yeah you think about even just drilling down to socioeconomic mm-hmm. you know a lot of that is luck where you're born mm-hmm.
1: what you're born into socioeconomic status yeah exactly yeah where you live But it's interesting when you say high-functioning, because the thing is, is that with the nature of my role, being very specialist, I only work with complex offenders. So Mm. I only work with serious violent and serious sexual offenders. The nature, pretty much 90% or more of the individuals I work with are extremely high-functioning. Wow. So they're extremely manipulative, extremely clever, very, very charming, very interpersonally capable. So it is really shocking when you hear about those individuals' offences.
0: Were you in Melbourne when the Jill Ma case happened?
1: No, I wasn't in Melbourne.
0: One thing that I was blown away by in that case was her husband, who obviously dealt with one of the most traumatic occasions in his life, then wrote an article, The Monster You Know. And we build these people up who commit these offences to be these horrendous monsters. And the fact is that most of the time, not most of the time, some of the time, they are functioning members of society. He had a girlfriend, he had a job, and they're still able to commit these crimes. The whole relation between homelessness, Mm. low socioeconomic, uh, people that abuse drugs, A lot of the time they're not these offenders
1: no and that's the thing is that i mean i'm not specifically or necessarily speaking about adrian bailey Mm. but in terms of high functioning offenders yeah you're completely right there it really isn't anything i mean there's a lot more going on there Mm. and i think that they are you know quotations normal like people that are functioning in day-to-day life and i think that's sometimes what can potentially what really sparks the fear in in the community really is that actually you just don't know know. and actually you know um we are very very much um we've departed the period of time when the paedophile is the one in the trench coat Mm. with um you know hanging outside school with the binoculars we we've we've passed that time and we've passed the time when the exposure offender is the one that again is wearing this weird coat and then exposing himself in parks you know there's it, we've we've that's long very much a myth yeah. obviously that exists there's still that profile of, yeah. of an offender but but really you know we're talking about people that commit offenses against children or offenses against um even offenses of rape mm-hmm. and actually these people aren't stereotypical generic profiles Mm. these people are really complex and they come in lots of different forms they look very very different they're different ages Mm. and sometimes I think that that is precisely the thing that sparks the fear in the general public because Mm. it could be your neighbour it could be your mates mate and I'm not saying this for the purpose of trying to scare people. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying it at all for that reason. The reason I suppose I'm sort of explaining it is that it really isn't clear cut Correct. and it really isn't. A lot of things in especially the media are presented in a black and white way but things just really aren't black and white. There's so much grey to what we're talking about Absolutely. and I'm certainly not trying to, you know, add Fuel, Fuel to the, to fire. the fire, yeah. Because obviously that's quite unsettling to think about that. But yeah. but unfortunately that is, reality. you know, reality.
0: I think the sentence that really struck me in that article was he said, you know, I looked at him across the courtroom and I was expecting this ogre, this this mm. monster, and he was articulate and well kept. On the flip side of what you're saying. You know, I'm fearful like anyone. But I also think, fuck, you just don't know what's going to happen in your life. It could be a bus. It could be a criminal. It could be, it's most likely exactly. going to be a heart attack.
1: <laughs> it's most likely going to gonna be, be a, a cheeseburger. A sh-
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> Realistically. Yeah, so true. I mean, it's more like, it's less likely to be a shark. But yeah, we don't. <laughs> we don't.
0: <laughs> People are like, well, well, what can I do? And it's like, well,
1: you just sort of need to live your life. And that's the thing. I think, like, the whole... I I mean, I completely understand the whole stranger danger um, Mm. thought process. But I think it is really as simple as what you just said then. It's like live your your life. And I really think that, as I said, I've worked the majority of my career with really sort of complex sex offenders. So Mm. me, more than anyone, should really be adapting my life, you know? Especially, you know, with any connection i have with children and and any connection i have with you know walking alone late at night but to be perfectly honest i really don't i try not to let it affect my everyday life like i'm not saying i walk around everywhere at night times and just like welcome it but i'm Mm -hmm. saying that i don't necessarily um massively change my behavior or i don't See a child and an old man, and then think, Oh god, he's a paedophile. Because lots of people in my job do think that, yes, you know, they see a granddad with their grandchild and then immediately think he's a paedophile. I mean,
0: that's the sad part of it, isn't it? And I
1: try, I try, it's hard because Mm. it does come into my thought pattern, but I try to live my life as normally as possible, yeah, and take the odd walk home in the dark, and you know, um, try and be not as mistrustful Mm. of of other people's behaviours and other people's intentions and other people's, you know, what you see on the outside. Yeah. But it is tough because mm. my default reaction is to almost ha- be suspicious. Mm. But do you think that's everyone's default reaction? I don't know. I really don't know. Again, it comes back to schemas and I think that's that if true. you're a real strong, um, you know, schema is the schema of mistrust and I think mm. that, you know, some people can relate to that more than others and really if you have... Um, you know, had that schema instilled in you from from childhood and through, you know, through your teenage years and through adulthood mm. and being reinforced, then yeah, you probably are going to be more suspicious and more doubtful and more fearful living your everyday life.
0: I I find it sad that some people let that schema take over their lives mm. and then they live years confined to one place or. Mm repeating cycles that are unhelpful to themselves to avoid something happening mm. but really what they're doing is as harmful.
1: Exactly. And sometimes it can be self fulfilling as well. Like, you know, and sometimes our all of our schemas in ourselves can be self fulfilling, you know, like if we have a a low self esteem, mm. then we might think, Oh, you know what, I'm not gonna go to this party because no one will talk to me or no one will like me or no one will befriend me and then we don't go to the party and then we then say to ourselves, "Well, no one contacts me. You know, no one wants to spend time with me." me. And sometimes, you know, some of our thinking and our behaviour can be very self-reinforcing, um, really. Correct. And I think, I think, yeah, I think schemas form a major part of, um, especially with atta- combined with attachment theory, form a major part of what I'm most passionate about and mm. what what plays a large proportion um, into my job my job role but that example that you just
0: gave that party example Mm. that's exactly true you know Mm. i can remember feeling that way in high school it breaks my heart that a lot of people go through this yet we still feel it improper to educate them Mm. and set them up on that awareness of it why does it have to be painful why can't we help ease the burden Mm. we're not taking away their human experience we're just giving them understanding of why that pain is there
1: yeah and that's what it is really coming back to what we were talking about before about that awareness mm. and that that very basic psycho ed yes. about understanding because sometimes the most scariest thing in the world can be when we don't understand ourselves, and that can be traumatizing if we don't understand ourselves, then we might make decisions or act out certain behaviors that are unhelpful to ourselves we can so
0: misinterpret
1: And the people's behaviours as well.
0: Anything, yeah. I 100% agree. You know what that means? That's a second gold star. You've made it to the end. Keep up the conversation. Be nice to each other. Be nice to yourself. Peace out.